Well, on the same day that the federal government released its carbon reduction emissions or carbon emissions reduction roadmap, the head of the International Renewable, Renewable Energy Agency said radical action is needed to shift away from fossil fuels and ensure global warming, global warming rather doesn't pass dangerous thresholds. Canada's natural resources minister was asked today about energy security as well. He says the country must be able to, quote, walk and chew gum at the same time when it comes to reducing emissions. Jonathan Wilkinson says, Wilkinson says the country can continue tackling climate change while helping European allies replace their supply of oil and gas from Russia. Well, joining me now to look at the promises including in, included in that roadmap and the numbers is George Hoberg. He's a professor of public policy at the University of British Columbia. He specializes in environmental and natural resource policy and governance, and he is the author of Resistance Dilemma. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you. So we have a roadmap at long last. Um, what do you make of it? Is it, uh, is it taking us in the right direction at least? It definitely points us in the right direction. I just, when I see a roadmap, I actually like to know when I'm supposed to turn left and when I'm supposed to get off the freeway. And uh, it doesn't have quite that level of resolution. What it does tell us is in broad terms, uh, which direction we're going and uh, kind of which routes to take. I guess one of the things that stood out to me, just even looking at the emissions reductions is that, and you'll forgive the analogy, it looks like we have to hit the gas in the final few years, at least in this decade. That step on the brake, maybe. Uh, but yeah, we, we, uh, we've known for a long time, and people like me keep screaming and screaming that we need to take this a lot more seriously. We need to reduce a lot faster than people are talking about. Uh, we finally in Canada have a government that seems to get that, although it still is profoundly constrained politically. But since it's uh, the, really the 2019 election has been moving in a, a very committed direction to uh, ratchet up all of our climate commitments and the climate policy levers that it has. And that continues uh, in this plan. One of the things that uh, that stood out, obviously, is the, is the oil and gas segment. We're asking for a reduction from 191 megatons to 110. Meantime, um, emissions have gone up since 2005, in fact. Environmental groups are saying today that this plan lets oil and gas off the hook. Clearly, even the opposition leader in Alberta disagrees, Rachel Notley. Uh, where do you stand on this? Uh, I think that it's a major breakthrough that the government has announced uh, a specific number that they're looking for a reduction. So what we've known, and again, this, this occurs, the government's very effective at, I use, like to use the term ratcheting up. So uh, first, it talked about net zero in 2050. Uh, then we got a, a target for uh, 40% or 40 to 50% reduction by 2030 for the economy as a whole. And then they announced that the oil and gas uh, sector needed to have a cap, uh, but that we were going to negotiate that. And now we know what the number that they're planning for that cap to be. And the number is big. It's a 42% reduction in eight years. Well, that, that eighth year, we're already a quarter of the way through uh, 2022, right? So that's a very big ask in a very short period of time. Uh, it, the, what environmentalists are concerned about is that percentage reduction is not as high as other sectors are being asked to give. I, I, I'm a little bit less worried about that because I think the issues with oil and gas are special and particularly challenging. Yeah, I was going to ask you a bit about the politics of this. We know that since the war in Ukraine and obviously the, a lot of attention on Russian energy and, and where it goes and this idea of energy security, that the, uh, the conversation has changed a bit. And I, if you could walk me perhaps through where the middle ground might lie here between those saying any 
restrictions of Canada's development of oil and gas is essentially, you know, promoting the likes of Vladimir Putin or any other uh, despotic leader around the world versus we need to meet our climate commitments, uh, which we've been talking about for quite a while. I'm not sure I'm your middle ground guy, but 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 let let, let me tell you how I think about this stuff. So uh, any big policy area like energy and climate policy involves the balance of a series of values and the relative uh, emphasis we give on certain values shifts over time. What the war in Ukraine has done is dramatically increase the salience of the concern of energy security, particularly in uh, Europe, but also worldwide, because it has had the effect of increasing the price of oil worldwide. Um, And that has certain advantages for Canada. The Canada oil and gas industry are are reaping profits as as a result of that. The question is what the longer term implications in the very short term, the huge energy security problems are especially natural gas in Europe. Uh, That's a a legitimate crisis that the European government is trying very hard to address. The U.S. and others are trying to figure out how to ramp up LNG exports to help with that. But the longer term implications are really about where the energy system needs to go, not only to address climate commitments, but also to reduce the sort of economic vulnerabilities that you get when you rely on a dictator like Putin for your energy supply. And a lot of people are taking that lesson, including the Europeans, that the best approach is to simply reduce that dependence. And the best way to do that is to ramp up renewable energy sources that you can control domestically, as opposed to rely on from faraway despots like Putin. Does this plan, do you think, provide enough for to smooth the transition between, I mean, so much is made now of, of a rocky energy transition. Does this plan at least, do you think, let, pave the way for a, for a smoother transition than it might otherwise be? The transition in the plan is relatively well laid out and smooth for the auto sector, uh, where there are specific targets uh, for zero emission vehicle sales, where there are specific budgetary numbers given to uh, incentivizing uh, consumers to buy those and for the rollout of charging infrastructure. Same as the case for the building sector. Uh, that's a relatively good news story. That lots of changes are going to be required to building infrastructure, but there's lots of uh, jobs in doing so. So that's kind of an economic boom. Uh, for the oil and gas sector, we don't have that level. All we have now is a number that we need to reach, and that number is a little bit scary in terms of the rate of change required over a period of time. We continue in Canada to tiptoe around the very difficult challenges faced uh, for the future of the oil sector in particular and the future of, of Alberta, the Alberta economy in particular, because of its, its significant dependence on the oil sector. Uh, it concerns me that it's too late in the day and, and, and we haven't yet had those serious conversations. There's a huge emphasis on zero emission vehicles in this, in this plan. And some of the numbers, while interesting, strike me as being very ambitious, considering the supply chain issue problems we're having now, the kinds of difficulties you see with the charging system. Do you think, I mean, noble as it may be, is, do you think it's feasible? I do think it's feasible. I, I, uh, the, it, it is ambitious. It needs to be ambitious. Uh, but uh, the oil sector, like many other large industrial, I'm sorry, the auto sector, like many large industrial sectors, will kick and scream about the fact that they can't do something until they're actually required to do it. And then they can get very excited and, and do it. This has been the history of emission control technology in the, oil, in the auto sector. And it's also turning out to be the case with uh, zero emission vehicles. Once those standards are set and uh, GM and others understand that that's their future, they're really going to dramatically ramp up production. 
Um, with improved battery technology, uh, the concerns about range anxiety will decline among consumers. Uh, it's extremely important that we build out uh, charging infrastructure, both in buildings and uh, along transportation routes in order to help reduce that range anxiety. Uh, but I, I kind of look at this as a very exciting thing. There's lots and lots of Canadian jobs in building those batteries and those cars and that infrastructure. Uh, and, and it's something that we should get excited about as a major industrial transformation to lead to a, a, a new way of living. We've certainly seen announcements over the past little while that lean in that direction. How about the charging network itself? That always seems to be the uh, the concern, or at least the, the criticism that is brought up. The charging network is not nearly vast enough. Canada is a country that's not, it's too wide. Everyone's too spread out. And the charging networks can be difficult to build. There is money in here to to help build that up. Do you see that happening in time? I mean, the, the numbers are pretty ambitious to, uh, to try and get at least 60% of all new vehicles sold in 2030 to be you know, that's that's six and a half, seven and a half. Yeah, years remember that's the, num- that's the new cars sold. Not new cars, cars sold, of course. On the yes. Road. Yes. And that is ambitious. But again, we really need to be ambitious. I'll keep saying that. Um, I actually think that the, the fact that Canada is such a big country and we're so spread out is a bit of a myth. Uh, we're actually a remarkably uh, urbanized country. And most of us live huddled close to the American border in big cities uh, where charging infrastructure should be relatively easy to find. Uh, the, the rural uh, vehicle owners and those who rely on long distance on, in rural roads will be harder to bring in as quickly into the system, but we can account for that. They are not that big a source of the overall emissions from automobiles uh, at, at this point. And uh, I think it's very important that we try to pursue as much progress on zero emission vehicles as we can in the short term. Do you think this this is a policy, this is a plan that allows, that takes into consideration some of those short-term concerns that people are having? Because let's be honest, you can talk long-term about climate change as much as you want, but short-term people have concerns. And sometimes these sorts of documents don't land because of it. I, I agree completely. That's always been the, the challenge with the uh, politics of climate change is uh, imposing short-term costs for the long-term gains that we need. I think uh, Canadian citizens have, uh, given what we've been through over the past couple of years, climate-wise, have become much more attuned uh, to the fact that we uh, we need to act, even if it's going to cost us a little bit more uh, at the pump and at, at other places. I, but I do hear you that the concerns around inflation uh, make that more uh, challenging. And I would look forward to the government uh, and the, the upcoming budget to see if they're planning to do anything about this. Are there ways to develop targeted rebates to economically vulnerable Canadians to compensate them for these increased costs? George Hilberg, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thanks, Ben.